0: Welcome to Politics Done Right on KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today, folks. Who do we have? Sanfronia Thompson, Texas House Dean from D.C., Seth Davis on American schism, and billionaire space fraud. Anyway, uh, Representative Sanfronia Thompson is the Dean of the Texas House. She is an institution in her own right, and she's fled Texas with her court to protect every Texan's vote. Representative Sinfonia Thompson took some time out of her busy schedule in Washington, D.C. She gave an interview immediately after completing her interview with Rachel Maddow. Second topic. Rep. Rokana was on point about these billionaire astronauts being parasites to us all. And it is much deeper and exploitative. MSNBC Hallie Jackson got one dissenter from the gullible and and programmed euphoria surrounding newly minted billionaire astronaut Jeff Bezos and his Blue Origin team successful 10-minute round trips to space. Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna nailed it on the head. You got to hear this. Last list, Seth David Radwell discusses what? That which ails America as he explains several topics in his book, American Schism, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. The conversation was very enlightening. I think you're going to like that. Before we get started, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune into 90.1 FM Houston or listen at kpft.org. Likewise, keep our 100,000-watt station that covers the entire Southeast Texas on air. And do help us get that new backup generator by donating what you can afford to our website at kpft.org. Please remember you can get politics done right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Well, folks, let's get busy with the dean of the house, the Texas House, that is, Representative Sanfronia Thompson. Today we have a the most special guest in the country right now. We're talking about Representative Sinfronia Thompson, the Dean of the Texas House. Someone that has been there for over 50 years and knows exactly how the system works. Representative, thank you so kindly for spending this time with Politics Done Right. I am delighted to be on your show. Well, let me tell you something. This is, this is important because I don't know if America knows the severity of what we're talking about. And uh, having you as the leader in this, in this motion, I think is quite important. So what I'd like you to do for, uh, for us is explain to America exactly what is happening in Texas, because I think they just think it's a, it's a voting thing that affects just a bunch of black people. In effect, this affects everybody. Why don't you tell us a little bit about exactly. what's going on?
1: It's a it's a bill that would affect everyone. Uh, What is really going on is uh, the legislature is trying to strip away the voting rights of people. Here's how they're trying to do it. Um, We have been very progressive, uh, probably due to the pandemic last year and trying to uh, create uh, conditions where people can go safely and cast their vote. We believe in the security of the vote. We believe in the transparency uh, in voting. And we want to make sure that people have a right to have a voice in their democracy if they if they choose. And how do you do that? You do that through the process of voting. In Harris County, we had some drive-through voting, which means that those persons, uh, and we found out that 60% of the person who went and drove through to cast their vote, 60% of them were women. And what happens is this, you get off about 11 o'clock at night. You know, the polls are normally closed at seven. But if you have a 24 hour voting uh, center where you can drive through, cash your vote, you don't even have to get out of your car. And you can just drive on and keep voting, keep voting and drive on and go home. It helps those mothers who have just picked their kids up, put them in the car, At 11 o'clock at night, they're driving home so she can get them in the bed, but she can stop off a few minutes, cast her ballot and keep going. Never have to wake the kids up to get to move out of the car and go inside of a voting facility to vote. They do not want larger urban areas to have that flexibility in voting. We had uh, 24 hour voting. The bill that is before the Texas legislature that we walked out on and refused to allow them to strip our citizens of their voting rights would deprive people with disabilities the opportunity to participate in government. Here's how that would happen. Let's say, for instance, that they got a mail ballot. And because of that disability, they want to send it in and you're required to sign your name on the back of it. You'll be required to put your uh, driver's license number on on it someplace or your last four numbers or your social. Now, if this ballot is supposed to be a sealed ballot, how are they going to get the number, your driver's license off of that envelope inside unless they open the envelope? In addition to that, you're supposed to sign it. Many times people, a person with disability, have acquired a driver's license or a identification card maybe five years ago. What happens when they have a stroke and they have the inability to sign their name like they did five years ago? That ballot is going to be thrown out because they're going to have an individual person who is not skilled and trained in handwriting uh, expertise. You just look at it and say, oh, this doesn't look like ever's uh, signature at all. Look at it what five years ago and look at it now. You can hardly tell well, whose signature it is. It doesn't take into consideration things that may have happened that would impede the, the signature of that particular person. And it creates some other problems. The Poll watchers. The election jury would be unable to dismiss a poll watcher, and the poll watcher is gonna have them run on the run of the precinct. They can come. They can look over your shoulder and see who, how you're voting. They can come close enough. If you're a person who's standing there talking to yourself, So I'm wondering, should I vote for this person or this person? And they'll listen to your conversation. They can get close enough to hear what you have to say. There's, there is a problem and there's a violation of some constitutional rights there. So it looks like to me that what the Republicans want to do in this legislation is to manipulate the laws so it would benefit them rather than to benefit the people of this state. And the reason that we left, and particularly the reason that I left, I had to go back into history, Albert. And I had to do some reflections. And when I did some reflections, I thought about my grandparents who reared me and how they used to work for $2 a week. And they would save pennies and nickels because they couldn't afford to save quarters. A quarter we saved was a whole lot of money back then. Particularly if you had $2 that you were making, you had to pay your transportation to your job and from your job. So you're really going to end up with less than the total $2. And then they saved up enough money to be able to vote. And we didn't have the mode of transportation like we have today where buses were running frequently or you can grab a, a, a van from the church. Those things were just didn't exist. And you had to go a long, they had to go a long ways to cast their ballot. And they could only vote in general elections. Because if you were black, you were not permitted to vote in the primaries. It was not until Thurgood Marshall won a case called Lonnie Smith versus the state of Texas that we were able to vote in the primaries in the state of Texas. And it was, that came about sometime in the early 60s. So when I thought about my grandparents and all the things that they went through, and I had an opportunity to see the people who had been beaten because to try to get a right to vote. They had been hosed down with fire, uh, holes, water, knocking them down. Dogs leached on them where they would be bitten, beaten with bivy clubs, churches bombed, buses set on fire. Many people were killed. Just trying to get the right to vote that was guaranteed all Americans under the Constitution of the United States. When I saw those sort of things and I went back into the files of my mind in history. It was difficult for me. A person who had to buy a poll tax when I first voted for me to sit there and remain a hostage in the House of Representatives in Texas and let those people rip away my constituents' constitutional rights to participate in government. It was wrong. It was wrong then, and it's wrong now, and I'll tell them they are wrong. So why are we here? Why are we here? Why are we looking now at a bill that want to do all these things? Just go back a few, uh, just a few years ago. The governor and the lieutenant governor lost Harris County. And they are for re-election next year, and they don't want to repeat of that. They don't want it to be repeated that the people of Harris County may not vote for them, and they may lose Harris County in the re-election of their offices. We have people of color. Texas is now 30 million people. Eighty-four percent of them are people of color. And the 15 percent are still trying to dominate That 84 percent. And we're having people of color win offices of various kinds at every level of our government. And that to them is a to the 15 percent or the 16 percent that remains. That is a complete threat to them. Why would I want to pass a bill where they're going to send poll watchers there that look like the Proud Boys? In a black or brown preset, Why would I want to do that? Just the mere presence of them is intimidating. Walking around you, looking like they, they're gonna uh prevent you from doing something. It, it sends, it's a chilling effect of people who walk in that booth to try to cast their balance. And I would and I'm just so disappointed that Texas has gotten to that position. And many other states across this nation have also gotten to that position. That the only way that they feel like the democracy to continue to work in this country is that they must rip away the rights of people of color to vote in America. That the people of color should not have a voice in their government if they want to. All of us want transparency. All of us want secure elections. And the Governor Abbott's own Secretary of State said the 2020 election was the most safest, secure, and transparent election. So, if all of that happened, why are we here?
0: Exactly. What's interesting, Representative, is that that same Attorney General Ken Paxton went on uh, conservative TV and said that had it not been for him, suppressing the vote in Harris County, Donald Trump would have lost the uh, Texas, the election in Texas. Isn't that sort of revealing?
1: I thought that was such an emboldening uh, position to take, that he was willing to suppress the vote and publicly admi- admit, yes, I suppressed the vote. Because had I not suppressed the vote, my lord and savior Donald Trump would not have won. Now, let me ask
0: you this, because you're in Washington, D.C., with with your crew, and um, do you see the ur- that do you feel that uh, the Democrats that you find on the national stage are they expressing the urgency that we can all see not only in
1: Texas but in other states as well? Well, today I uh, I had an opportunity to visit with Senator Manchin from Virginia. And uh, we uh, uh, could have had a, a, a nicer person to visit with, a person who was uh, uh, seemed to be quite understanding of our plight. And he allowed us to talk to him about what is actually happening to us here in Texas. He allowed to, uh, us to uh, tell him he listened to what we had to say. And uh, he didn't say it to us. He said, you know, I thought you all were going to walk in here and talk to me about the filibuster. Well, you know, we're all politicians. We know sometimes you have to work with people across the aisle. And sometimes you feel like that maybe, you know, you give them another uh, lease on life in order to come around to what you believe would be the right approach for them to take. And, I went, and we said, no, we want to talk to you about what our plight is and how you believe that how we, you, believe that you can help us. And that, and in the end of the conversation, we talked about the Voters' Right Act. that was knocked down in the Alabama, uh, Shelby versus Alabama case in 2013. We talked about the new case that uh, the Roberts Court just uh, ruled upon where they literally killed all aspects of the Voters' Right Act. VR4 uh, and VR2, right? Pardon me? VR4 and VR2. Yes, absolutely. And... Um, he talked, and we told him about the need of those those provisions being back in law. And then he he went and went through an enumeration of years, and he showed us that he didn't understand it because the Congress had the almost unanimously voted year after year after year in an effort to be able to uh, reauthorize the Voting the Voting Rights Act. Uh, and he couldn't understand why there uh there was such a withdrawal from that position after they had voted for it during the time of uh President george W. Bush in two thousand i think in seven right. yes. yes and so he says uh we talked about guardrails that he want to put on there uh the bill um making them the- the, uh, the national holiday for for uh voting uh on federal, at the federal level. And we talk about him reinstituting, particularly for the state of Texas, the Voters' right Act, and how we felt like the, that Voters' right Act would be a protection uh, for people to have a right to vote, who wanted, who were eligible to vote, to have a say in their government if they decided that they wanted to do that. So we had, I believe what we, what I would have considered a very meaningful uh, conversation with him today. Now, let's get to
0: uh, one last thing, and that is the practicality of uh, what you're actually doing now uh, the The session will end in about three weeks uh, in three weeks, I imagine everybody will be returning to Texas after which the governor would immediately have another session. Will you all then go to that other session or will you uh, well, I know you can't really tell a strategy, but uh, but will you uh, would you likely, given that you have some assurances on the federal level? would you likely go ahead and just let the bill pass? I know every Democrat will vote no on the bill, but let it pass knowing that all the laws that are being passed that, that are voter-aggressive laws will actually be rendered moot by uh, the federal side?
1: Okay, let me, uncouple couple those, three, three, three um, questions that you asked me. First of all, we don't know at what uh, time that the federal law would be passed if, if one is passed. Uh, he just believed that if the, if the bill was streamlined down to uh, several things that, that he'd probably get enough support to put in place some safeguards that would be very helpful and beneficial. And I saw that as a way of, or a means of building upon something once you have something in place. And second uh, we don't know what our strategy may be at the end of this first uh, special session. Uh, so I can't speak to that because I really don't know. I don't. I really don't know. And thirdly, the Republicans, if they have a quorum, can pass the bill at any time because they have the votes and we don't. We can't we can't stop them. The only way that we were able to stop them this time is because of the fact that, you know, we left. And the, the governor is saying that we are causing. Um, I leaving is' causing the uh, uh six of the agencies uh under the le- he he vetoed the legislative branch of the he did that that's not you you're doing that's what he did. He did that because what we did was we have an we have a constitutional obligation to pass a budget. We passed the budget we gave it to the governor, and he made a decision to veto the legislative branch he He made the decision to do that. And to punish those people, and now he wants to say it is our problem, but it's not his, our problem; it's his problem because he created it.
0: Oh, we'll make sure to let that be known quite widely that it is that, that what he's uh, and
1: he's bringing up the issues with teachers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which again, well, we voted, we voted for the teachers' bill. Right. We voted, we voted for a teachers' bill, and a, and and we voted for cola for teachers, and those bills went to the calendars committee. The council's chairman is a Republican and the majority of the people on the council committee are Republicans. They could have let that bill out at any time they wanted to and passed it. We all, we always know that the Republicans are
0: not into teachers anyway, but um, uh, they're not into education. They're not into any of those things. I know as as the Dean of the Congress, you can't quite address that, but um, <clears throat> that I can. <laughs> anyway, uh, representative, um the last question I always ask anybody that I speak to is, what would you have liked me to ask you or what would you like to let our
1: audience know that we didn't get to? Well, one of the things I like my audience to know is that we believe so much that the right to vote, as Lyndon Johnson said in 1965 on August the 6th, is the greatest right that we have. And it gives a person right to have a say in their government. And my constituents can be assured one thing: that I'm going to do everything I possibly can to protect their right to vote. It's not a privilege; it's a right. There is it's absolutely. a right that cannot be taken from them, and I don't want that. I don't want that right stripped away from them because some Republicans want to manipulate the laws where it would benefit them to stay in power.
0: There is no doubt
1: that
0: your district has the person who needs to be there fighting for them. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Representative Sanfronia Thompson, it's been my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right. Thank you. Another day, another billionaire in space. Oh, it's so exciting! The mainstream media is going berserk. Everybody is happy. Somehow, Do, doing something that we that we did 60 years ago is now novel again. Well, we did it a bit differently, but the technology, the, the the theories, the science theories, all remain the same, and we've done nothing new. We didn't go to the moon. We didn't go to the space station. The heights that the space station has reached, or anything of that nature, what we're good at is marketing, something great has happened here really, what really has changed between what Bezos and Sir Richard Branson has done, what has changed please tell me, other than somehow, some billionaires making money off of the brains that we the people created when we did all that we did with NASA, well you know what, it was great to see a congressperson, a RoKana. Who got it He saw it He realized the fraud Let's go ahead and take a look at it And then we'll take it on the other side I don't want to be a pooper I really don't It's novel It's great to see somebody go up into space But all the things that go behind it All the excitement The exhilaration All of these things Is it really Is it really Check this out And then we'll take it on the other side
2: I want to bring in somebody who has a bit of a different perspective on all this. Democratic Congressman Rokon, a member of the House NASA Caucus. Congressman, um, good morning. Thank you for being with us. Your initial thoughts on what we've seen go down over the last 90 minutes here.
3: Well, I don't think I've heard of a bigger oxymoron than talking about billionaires going up into school and then using the word democratizing. Uh, Here are the facts. Amazon has refused to pay any tax in 2017 or 2018. Jeff Bezos didn't pay tax two of those years, and now they're spending millions of dollars that could have been taxed using that to go up into space. But, Hallie, there's a deeper problem, and that is that these tech leaders view the social good as equated to technological progress and market value. They're missing key principles such as justice, such as liberty, such as equality, such as compassion. And the reality is that they have an unexamined view of what constitutes a good society and sometimes an arrogant view.
2: You in a way preemptively responded to some of that. when he was doing a bunch of network interviews over the last 24 hours, here's what he said. And of course, people said, look, we have so many problems here
0: on Earth, and they're right. And we need to do both. And we've always done both. Mm-hmm. We need to focus on the here and now, and we need to look to the future.
2: Is there now, Congressman, some degree of scientific value, some degree of overall benefit coming out of these missions?
3: Yes, of course. But who is Jeff Bezos to decide? Why does he get to decide what the right balance is between taking care of homeless individuals, between helping people with STEM education, between making science and astronauts more inclusive and having private missions into space. I mean, what's offensive is that he thinks that a few people like him get to make these societal decisions. No, we live in a democracy. Democracies get to decide the balance.
2: Let me share with you a bit of the uh, libertarian perspective here from Reason Magazine. An op-ed responds pretty directly to the criticism that you're making, writing, um, the irony is that NASA takes our money to finance a space program that no ordinary citizen could ever hope to access. Yet when Branson, Musk and Bezos spend their own wealth with the explicit goal of one day selling ever cheaper tickets to all comers, that is when congressmen get grumpy. I'm not saying you are the grumpy congressman they're talking about, but they're clearly alluding to the the type of pushback that you've been been putting up here. What say you?
3: Last I heard, it cost $28 million. I don't see how that's democratizing access to space. If they want to argue that NASA should try to open up space flights to uh, the American people, let's have that conversation and we can try to democratize access to the space program in a responsible way my problem is why do bezos uh, and a few of his friends get to make these decisions and why money that should have been used to pay taxes that's offensive
0: Absolutely offensive. You know, after uh, after I saw the launch, I really got upset. I was sitting down there. I was talking to my wife and saying, I can't believe the hoopla they are making out of this stuff. It's so gu- – we're so gullible, you know? And here's what I said. I said, pooper alert. As the media launch, this is what I r- – I wrote a Twitter chain, and this is what I said. uh Pooper alert – as the media teaches us how to hyperventilate with excitement over something we did 60 years ago with taxpayer dollars I cannot help but get upset with our programmed gullibility note that Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic were privy to the technology we all developed all enhancements to our composite knowledge that should be in the public domain are now the property of these private companies to be used at their will and for the profit of the few millionaires and billionaires. Let us be clear. Virgin Galactic reached around 53 miles up there and Blue Origin reached around 65 miles. The space station that has been flying for decades with public dollars is orbiting the Earth at 240 miles or so. Neither company has yet reached the real space goal, but is receiving an inordinate amount of free advertising. There is one good thing out of this moment. A wrong has been righted. After doing the work, Wally Funk found out NASA was not sending women to space. At 83, she got her opportunity to at least cross the Carmen line into space. So, of all this hoopla that goes on, the only good thing that I see out of this is that somebody that was denied access to space because of her gender was able to go up there and prove that, yes, I did it after all because I was one of the first and the nine. But as far as technological advancements, all of this could have been done under the domain of NASA where we, the people, would have maintained all of the technology that we originally developed in the first place. But now what we're doing is they talk about democratizing space. No, they're making the ownership of travel to space belong to El Senor Besos, Richard Branson, and those other private companies who will hold the technological rights to these things, things that are built on the technology we all the people created. You know, Stephanie Rule. I love Stephanie Rule. I love what she stands for. I love the way she get, does her uh, news, et cetera, because she's usually honest. But even she got caught up into the, into the hoopla where she said, this is a proof of American exceptionalism. I said, absolutely not. How could this be the proof of American exceptionalism? This isn't something that we the people are doing This is something that Jeff Bezos and others are doing To make a buck Not to make America better They are only doing this to make a buck When we talk about real space travel We are supposed to be talking about the integral America So this is what I tweeted to her Uh, Stephanie Rule Love your great reporting and vibrancy But Blue Origin's achievement of the already achieved Is not American exceptionalism It is gullibility. If billionaires paid their taxes, NASA would do this work where the intellectual property is all ours, as opposed to us building the foundation. And then after we take the risk out of building the foundation, we get parasites that come and build something as if it's new. The other part of the parasitic industry saying, hey, look at the great things they've done. You know what, guys? They hadn't even made it into orbit. We have a space station technology, which I also worked on. I worked on some of the software on space station. But we have technology out there. Right now, old technology that is orbiting the Earth thousands of times since it was placed up there. And we get a couple of guys who barely touch space. And they get all the attention for being billionaires and doing something with the technology we created, and they're going to keep all the enhancements for themselves and charge a few more dollars to millionaires to get some flights. And you know what? Ultimately, we do what we always do. We cheer billionaires who use us to raise their or make their billions and then tell us, if you want to use what you've created you got to pay us who've created nothing to do it we have a very special guest seth david radwell is the author of american chisholm and an international known business executive and thought leader in consumer marketing he previously served as president of east scholastic the digital arm of the global children's publishing and education company and as president of Bookspan Bertelsmann, where he developed book clubs for diverse readership, Black Expressions and Mosaico. In addition to overseeing all editorial, marketing, media, and digital functions for many other iconic brands, he holds a master's degree in public policy for the Kennedy School of Government, Harvard University, and Bachelor of Arts degree summa cum laude from Columbia College, Columbia University. He currently divides his time between. New York, New York, Los Angeles and
4: Paris, Paris. How are you doing today, Señor Seth? I am thrilled to be with you here and I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, look, I
0: I am I'm look, just the title of the book, man, American Schism. Come on. You have to you have to like it. But anyhow, what you know, you talk about there being two Americas. What are we talking about? Because we know that but a lot of Americans, a lot of people want to kind of say that that's not a reality. Explain.
4: Well, so uh, of course there is a tremendous American divide today, as we all know. But I feel that the current dialogue and the current approach to understanding it is actually misinformed because we're we're caught in two bubbles. I mean, one the one we hear about all the time, egberto, is our partisan bubble that we're we're getting news from one source and there's there's no more kind of Walter Cronkite news that's objective. But there's another bubble. The other bubble is a time bubble. We we think that was so unique. But the truth is, is that the political divisions in this country are not new. They've existed for, for our entire history. So my mission on this research project was to do an investigative tracing to take our divide and understand it back from the founding of the country and how it's evolved over the centuries. And that's exactly what I did in American Schism. I I go back to the founding where there was a major disagreement, a a kind of a break in views between two enlightenment schools, what I call the moderate enlightenment and the radical enlightenment. And I'll, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. The point being is that the antecedents for what we see today, the rancor and the acrimony go back to our founding. And unless we understand their chronological history and their evolution—we're not going to be able to make progress at getting to solutions. And you know, I'm I'm so
0: glad to hear somebody say that our problems are all all that makes up what makes America began at the beginning. Oh, great! We just realized that all this began at the beginning. Now, you you said something interesting. Um, you said the independent, the Declaration of Independence was radical but yes. the Constitution was moderate. Now, here's the deal. I agree with that. I wonder if I agree with it for the same reason you do. So explain.
4: Okay. Well, one, one of the things the book does after laying out this radical-moderate split, it then analyzes our history through six discrete periods using that as a lens. So you bring up a great one, which is the first major one. The radical nature of The Declaration states that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. That is a radical statement that comes from uh, Thomas Jefferson's pen, which is is ironic in its own sense, which we can get into later, but which comes out of the French Enlightenment and the notion of what the the notion of a republic, the, the social contract requiring an egalitarian form of government of the people To be just. So and so there are two differences, main differences with the radicals and the moderates, to make it easy. One is that the radicals believed in an egalitarian representative democracy as the sole legitimate form of government. And the second thing is that the radicals believed there needed to be a strong separation between church and state. They documented how the church for centuries had colluded with the monarchy to keep the people oppressed. Whereas the moderates, people like Alexander Hamilton and John Adams, were very much aristocratic Republicans. Uh, So that's the the crux of the difference. So to answer your question, the Declaration is quite radical. So what happened between 1776 and 1787? And that's an entire chapter of American schism. Why was it that all of a sudden that things became so moderate and we had a compromise to keep the south, the southern colonies involved and and do do crazy things like what would seem absurd today, like calling African-Americans three fifths of a person? How did we make those compromises? And the answer to that question is that declaring independence from Britain and stating bold ideals is one thing. Building a country with real solutions and a complex system of government that had the ability to raise taxes, pay for the war, develop a foreign policy—all of that complexity. That, as we say, the devil is in the details. That complexity required an incredible amount of what's today a dirty word: compromise. And so James Madison and many others literally compromised between the what became the Federalists and the Republicans on these two alternate models, and we ended up with. With a compromise that that, of course, was was as Lincoln has told us years, uh, almost 100 years later, didn't do justice to the creed of the Declaration. I mean, he said our work is not done, Um, but it was a first attempt and it was certainly better than the Articles of Confederation. So in summary, to answer your question, I think there was a need for practical solutions that required compromise and so people like that were problem solvers geniuses like Alexander Hamilton who could run a, run the country they put solutions in place that would actually work now when does compromise become capitulation that is one of the most incredible questions and I'm so glad you brought that up because clearly if you look at our history we have examples when compromise has really worked and, and I could talk about one that's really very very important right now. But in, in the case of of African-Americans and Native Americans, I would say compromises have, have really fell short. We've never those are some of the areas where I mean, what American schism does after going through this history, it boils down the key questions that are really foundational from all the stuff you hear today to three things. And one of them is, do we truly believe in a government bottom up of the people? And if the answer to that question is yes, and by the way, I think there are many people in the Republican what do you Party. Think say, the answer, wait, what do you think the answer is? I think it's, it's the only form of government that's epistemologically superior. What, I'm, what do I mean by that? It's a form of government where we can learn. In other words, in an autocracy, which, of course, the world is moving towards. Decisions are handed down from above, and, and people have to live with it. But the radical enlighteners, the, especially the French radical enlighteners, understood The true the true meaning of the Enlightenment was the capacity of the individual and the education of the individual. Democracy is the only form of government that that allows humans to use their God given capacities of of empirical observation and reason to come to solutions. So it is a superior form.
0: I want to I want to stop you in a second here because and and this may be part of your book, maybe not a part of your book, because I think, first of all, I, I think this discussion is actually great. Uh, We talk about the problems beginning from the inception of the country, from the founding of the country, uh, radicalism versus moderate, uh, et cetera. And I asked you the question as far as when does when does compromise become capitulation? Because, as you rightly pointed out, that as far as uh, natives are concerned, as far as blacks are concerned, as far as Chinese is concerned, everybody could make a compromise on the lives of those. That's where that's where compromise were were made. The question does, that we, I think it's it's essential for us to ask is, isn't it then maybe the, hypocr- the hypocrisy of the initial that allows us to be where we're at today? True or false?
4: Uh, that's a tough one. I would say false in the following sense. There's, there's always hypocrisy, so I'm not denying that. But what I'm trying to do in the American schism, Umberto, is take a longer term perspective. You know, the U.S., the country has been built on disagreements, we can disagree as long as we're having a rational argument based on facts and and truth, and that's what I what made me write this book and leave my business career on put it on hiatus, if you will, was I could not tolerate it was it was bad enough to tolerate how our political discourse had collapsed, but I couldn't tolerate the assault on truth, how objective truth has disappeared. And so to, to, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to bring this back to your question, because I think there, there's been hypocrisy, there's been compromises, but over the long haul, we have made progress. And and what, what what drives me crazy about the right, or the far right, for sure, and other elements of the established right, is this notion of of spreading what are basically lies, of not of not believing in facts. But so there there have been hypocrisies, but we've made enormous progress. And I can give you one of the things American schism does is go through examples like the, the Progressive Party and the progressive era of, of, the, of the 19th century or certainly the civil rights movement. But there have been many times what the book really ends up showing is that there's this pendulum swing. So we, we tend to make progress, like radical reconstruction. We had an incredible opportunity in, 18th. as you know, I'm sure. I'm sure you know. Yeah, 80, that 80, eighteen sixty-five. Six yeah. yeah, but 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 in the, the next couple of elections, Egberto, eighty-five percent of Southern African Americans were registered and were voting. Right, and then they're fast-forward fifteen years, and and but thanks to the Ku Klux Klan and everything else, five percent were. So we, we had this pendulum swing where we seem to make progress and move towards a more egalitarian, embracing notion that fulfills the creed and the declaration, and then almost like a. Every force has an equal and opposite reaction. We have a, like a pushback, and well, you I know, argue. Good in in uh, in in
0: engineering, what we have this stuff known as a steady state error, and that's where you keep getting those, those those swings. In other words, it never coalesces to the to the mean; it just keeps swinging around the mean. So that 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 sort that is sort of a thing that occurs in science as well. So it never it never coalesces to where it should, but it keeps going back and forth. Anyhow, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about. Um, economy you says how has the economy shaped the ideals and beliefs of the American on both sides of the divide because I want to tackle that a, a, a little bit with regards to your book
4: well so, so it's the social and political, analysis, if you will, of these two different sides and how they fought with each other and contended cannot be looked at without understanding the economics behind it. They're they're fundamental Uh, from the from the form of I mean, Jefferson's original notion of an agrarian economy. That was his uh, idyllic uh, vision that he had to what happened. For example, I mentioned the progressive era. I mean, the, the amazing uh, coalition of the, of the first, the Farmers Alliance, which were Southerners that were incredibly uh, mistreated by the economic system of the U.S., related to the dollar, the greenback policy, and various things. But they ended up making a coalition in some ways with Northerners who were, were oppressed workers, who were immigrants, All, most, most of that entire movement, which led to huge change. Was economic. It came out of economic need. So my point being is that for every one of the vignettes that I go through in American Schism, I ha- you have to portray the economic issues at hand. If you fast forward till today, I would argue that I mentioned before that the French radicals talked about this collusion between the monarchy and the ch- and the church. We've had a collusion in this country since Billy Graham between the Conservative Party and evangelicalism. Yeah. It's a similar collusion where, you know, the, at a, for economic reasons, conservatives hold their nose and get on board for their own self-interest where, you know, we, we're end, at this point where for all intents and purposes, we're a plutocracy run by the rich, right? So, so, and, and so they get on board with evangelicals because, you know, ha, ha, ask yourself this question, Egberto, how did Donald Trump get all those 81 million people to vote against their self-interest by supporting the tax plan, which of course benefited a very, his tax plan. He actually said it at the signing. He said, he said to his colleagues, his business colleagues were there. This is going to make you guys quite rich (laughs) and people vote for him. My point being is that there's been a collusion going on between elements of the evangelical, um, church in america and the conservative business movement for quite a while and i have nothing against faith or religion but what i do have what i do think is is not viable with a democracy is when religion religion or a certain religion takes hostage certain political actors for their own benefits and that's what that's what's described in the third part of the book in great detail I mean, and that that is understandable. Look, let me let me tell you
0: how I I talk about it a whole lot. I talk about it being an illness. Right. Because, I mean, you just said it perfectly. How do you vote against your own interests? Because you don't know you don't naturally do these things. I mean, a lot of people like to use a lot of the isms. Right. The racism, the sexisms and all of that. That is true. But you know what I've seen? I I tell you what. And I don't know how you feel about this. So getting away a little bit from the book here, um, when Obama got elected, I said to I, I said to a lot of uh, folks in my show, it proved my point that there is a limit. There is a limit where the isms don't matter. Uh, I I gave folks an example of uh, when Obama was campaign. Obama's people were campaigning in Pennsylvania. Uh, a, a guy went up to a house and said, "Hey, um, we are here to canvass. Who are you voting for?" And the guy, the wife, turns around to the guy. I don't know why she thought she had to do that, but she turned around to the guy and say honey who are we voting for <laughs> and he turns around and he says we are voting for the end guy you know <laughs> you get my point point. and the, the point being at that point his uh his economic necessities his the uh, over over went above his racism right that right that he did right. that and 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 i've always said that in in america we're not uh, you, you know we will reach the point eventually where the right will not be successful in doing this because eventually people's personal economy will supersede all their isms.
4: Well, I hope so. But but if you look at the example in the rest of the world in terms of our talk on the march, I'm not so sure. I mean, you know, I I, I don't want to get again too far off the scope. But what's going on in in China is uh, amazing, and in the sense that because the economic benefits overall are so great and everybody's rising, right? They're allowing more and more autocracy. I mean, it's becoming a more a more oppressive system in many ways, but economically, it's not. See, so so it's a tricky thing. I am personally very concerned, and I know you work. I've read some of your stuff about. This this assault, this assault on the tr- I think we have to reestablish what I say, fight on reason with reason. We have to reclaim our discourse. There is an assault on truth going on in this country now that is so powerful. That is what, of course, the Russians embraced a while ago in terms of disinformation, but it, it's, it's now been embraced by certain certain parts of the Republican Party. But and then, it is, let me yes. stop you. That's the importance of your book.
0: Because remember what I just said, right? What I just said is I think in the long run, people are going to be like that guy with Obama. But the, what's going to give them the impetus to do that is, are people like yourself, your book, having, having the baseline. I always talk to people about planting seeds, not wanting them to change today, right. but planting right. seeds so that when the time comes, they will have that building block
4: on which to change. So, so I love that you said that, Igberto, because here's why. Uh, So I I most of my career has been in business. I I do have a a master's degree in policy, but I built many companies and I took a hiatus because I couldn't most of my personal and business network, whether it was left or right, they they didn't want to talk about politics anymore. They felt it was a third rail Mm -hmm. and they they do what I call put their head in the sand. And I don't think you change you change people overnight or or even maybe over a a while. But but I think. You cannot avoid discussing in a rational way and respectful way issues, especially with the young, because young people cannot take democracy for granted. So 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 I wrote this book to start this movement bottom up of fighting unreason with reason. I think we have to reclaim our democracy because without objective truth and rational debate, an obje- a democracy is doomed.
0: I agree with you 100 percent. I was surprised that Donald Trump got seventy-five million votes. In other words, if we had kept Hillary Clinton's level of, if we didn't go and over, if, when I say we, I'm talking about progressives and Democrats, had overperformed at eighty-one million, that seventy-five million that Trump got was even more than what Hillary Clinton right. got, beating him by three million. That's right. Uh, how do you explain that? So,
4: so the, 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 there's a chapter in the book that, remember I talked about this pendulum back and forth. Right. In some ways, it looks at the Trump era as a pendulum pushed back from the Obama era. But he, here's Trump was a master demagogue. And if you look across history, what demagogues do is they figure out how to push buttons that incite rage and fear. I mean, this is not, you know, this has been going on with demagogues for, for history. Trump was a master at that. Now, he didn't create the rage. That had been building for years, and, and the book talks about that as well, but he was a master of unleashing it, unleashing the rage, and that's why he develops a cult-like following. So the answer to your question is, um, he's created a whole movement that denies truth. Let me give you an example. I was, I was sitting downstairs with one of my neighbors who I hadn't seen in a while because I was away, and I was talking to him, and I said, oh, I just got the vaccine, that's why I'm traveling again, I'm really comfortable and I said to him, what about you? Did you get vaccinated? And he said to me, me? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to get that vaccine. Now, I'm not saying that there are some good reasons maybe people don't want to get vaccinated. But but his with one sentence, he showed me that he was part of this cult of denying that we have a virus that is claimed. How many American lives? Six hundred thousand. Six Six hundred and
0: six thousand.
4: OK, so so like that's what I mean about living in reality. You know, it, it, what I call in the book, I call it this po- late postmodernism. You know, the, the, the foundation of the Enlightenment was all about objective truth. And then that was the prevalent model of the world until 50 years ago, when the, the Reconstructionist, the postmodern movement said everything is relative. <laughs> and And now that's translated into everyone can have their own truth. No, that's not true. What the postmodern movement really wanted to do was bring other perspectives into the conversation because so much of our history was written by white men. So th- there was a, the intent was to bring other viewpoints in, which is fundamental, but that doesn't mean that objective truth doesn't exist. So we, we've gone way too far. I, mean, I believe that fixing this is going to take time but it has to do with things like civic education which are is required for that democracy. that is where
0: I was going to next I was going to say we need to close out with you giving us an example of because uh, you know there's a whole lot to the book what yes. we want to do is we want people to go out there and get the book but give us a little bit of things that you think that people would love to hear say hey there actually though there is a solution to all of this okay
4: great so so this will, let me give you a couple of examples there's there's two solutions I'll give you that are in the book in the third part one is structural and one is more of an investment. The structural one is easy. We, it, it, The way our system works, we, we are captive by two parties that run, the, that run the show, and they're a monopoly. And we can't have other candidates in because every time they're a spoiler, they take votes from one. There's a thing called ranked choice voting, where there could be six or seven platforms out there, and voters are allowed to rank them in order of preference. So as soon as the first, some of the lower ones drop out, their votes get reallocated. And all of a sudden, third parties are not spoilers. Mm -hmm. This is a structural thing that has been shown to bring, it's more democratic in many ways. So so that's a structural thing that I go into in some detail in the book. Let me give you um, one which lets lets structural and more about priorities. You know, we we as a society in America uh, spend an amazing amount of of time and wealth, managing our money and, and our investment in financial assets. We don't nearly invest as much time and attention to our human capital. What we
0: probably need to start reminding, doing again is teaching critical thinking, how people can actually learn about critical thinking. Now, uh, Seth, um, last question that I always ask is, please go ahead and tell me what I should have asked you that I didn't. The
4: question that I that I, I, I wish you would have asked me is, well, or, or I wanted to discuss more is why is it that through social media or through other forms of communication, our our dialogue has become so rancorous, whereas, you know, that my data show that 70 percent of Americans reject both the extreme left and right. and believe we have more in common. Why doesn't that come out? And the answer is, we are now, you know, we, the, human, the human species over millennia of evolution have these amygdala-driven knee-jerk reactions based on fear and anger. And, and those things are important. They, they get endorphins going. Mm-hmm. If you, you know, Igberto, we all know this because if you're in a sports arena, we know how good it feels to be with the in-group and attack the out-group. It feels wonderful. That's a wonderful thing for a football game. It's no way to conduct public policy. And, and so that when I say our entire approach to this Twitter, Twitter storm is wrong and it's misguided. And we have to say enough is enough. And I, I'm calling on my professional colleagues with fight Unreason with reason to embrace American schism as a platform of rejecting the dialogue today and starting it fresh.
0: Seth David Radwell, author of American Schism. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right.
4: Egberto, it's been such a pleasure, and I'd be happy to come back with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed our show today. We really want to make sure that you're well informed. Again, Please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune into 90.1 FM or listen at kpft.org. Keep us on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org. Once again, remember, you can get politics done right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube live at politics done right Dot com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is Egberto Willis at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that. Listen, KPFT must stay alive. Please support it. But I got to get out of here now. My name is Egberto Willis, and you know how I end this baby. I am what out. Agents to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S.
1: That is at Egberto Willies. Let us engage.